Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name is Debbie, and I am from uh, the, Level, the Level Plains Al-Anon family group, Level Plains, Alabama, and I'm a grateful member. I want to thank the committee, first of all, for having me here. And I don't know who ordered the weather, but yay, <laughs> it's wonderful here. Um, I, I heard that you had a little heat, heat wave last week like we did. It was awful in southern Alabama, but this weather is gorgeous. And it's our first time, Norman, well, my first time to be in uh, Nashville, and I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having us. Um, thank you for the little basket that we have in our room, uh, and just thank you for the hospitality, and thank you for allowing me to spend more time with Larry and Mindy. It's a blessing. I uh, want to start out, first of all, by telling you that what I'm going to tell you today is my perception of how things happened, not necessarily how they happened or what was said. It was my perception. The second thing I want to tell you that's very, very important for me to say is I do not blame my parents or the person I married for any of my character defects. They are mine, and I cultivated them myself. I uh, learned, I was brought up in a military home, and I learned things at a very, very young age. And some of those things I'm going to share with you today, and, and one of the first things that I was taught as I was growing up was that you didn't get close to people. You didn't get close to people because you were either going to move or they were going to move and you'd get hurt. So your family was your um, nucleus, and you didn't spread anything outside of your family. You didn't tell anything negative. You didn't talk to anybody. So what I learned was that I kept people at a distance and I kept a wall around me, and that wall became my prison. Um, The second thing that I learned was you don't tell anybody your business. You keep it within your family, you put a smile on your face, and you go about your business. I never learned to follow through with anything. Um, Just about the time that it was, you know, things got kind of tough and there was going to be a big learning lesson for me to learn in my life, it was time to move. So I found out about geographic cures before I even met the alcoholic. I knew that when times got tough, don't worry about it, Debbie, you're going to be moving on. I never learned how to follow through with anything. And that's why um, one of the things that Al-Anon taught me was how to follow through with a commitment. And i like to tell you that February 1st, 1983, was the day that I made a commitment to the 12 steps of Al-Anon and the program of AA and Alcoholics Anonymous <clears throat> that changed my life forever. And that I am forever grateful. Um, We moved around quite a bit as I was growing up. I went to 13 different schools by the time that I was in my second year of college. I was always the new kid on the block, and I always felt out of place. I never felt a part of. I always felt outside looking in because no matter where I moved, there were already groups of friends there, and I was the outsider. So I would do just about anything to fit in. Um, you know, I would change my personality, I would change who I was just to fit in with you, just so you would like me. And that is something that followed me for a long time in my life. Um, I also made fear-based decisions. Most of my life, I have made decisions based on fear. Not on fact, but on fear. So as I go through today, you'll understand a little bit more. 
Um, <clears throat> my dad, I want, to, I want to share with you a little bit about my father. My father was a giant in my eyes. And somebody recently saw pictures of my dad, and they said, well, no wonder you thought he was a giant. He was a big man. He was a big man, and I was a little girl, and, and he was my daddy. And I would wake up in the morning, and, and just by the look on his face, I knew exactly how I would feel that day. Just by the look on his face, I could tell you that he wanted the catch-up past. Just by the look on his face, I could tell you that he was disappointed in me. By the look on his face, I could tell you a lot of things. Daddy had huge hands. He didn't have to spank. He didn't have to punish. All he had to do was put those hands on your shoulder and just grab. And he, you knew. You knew what he meant. I also learned um, that if you are good, you are loved. And if you are bad, you're not lovable. When I was punished and I would run to my mother, my dad would say to my mom, don't hug her, she's bad. And that went with me for a long, long time through my lifetime. The God of my understanding that I grew up with was a punishing God. I grew up with words, uh, God's going to get you for that. God's watching you. It was kind of like a Santa Claus in the sky, and I was always the bad little girl. So, you know, <laughs> I was going to be zapped no matter what. Um, about my junior year in high school, my dad was um, to go back to Vietnam the second time. And he moved my parents and... Um, my sister and brother, he moved my mother, my sister, and my brother back to Arkansas where I was born. I was born in Arkansas. If you ask me today where I'm from, today I'll try to say Alabama, but most of the time I say Arkansas. I've lived in Arkansas one year of my life, one year. I've lived in Alabama since 1979. See how hard it is for me to, to, to try to fit into anywhere. But anyway, we, we moved to, to uh, Arkansas, and my dad went on to Vietnam, and that was the year that I met Norm. And we were in a dance, uh, we were in a room um, smaller than this, about, about a fourth of the size of this, and Norm walked through the door. And when I saw him walking through that door, there was just light and excitement and energy bouncing all over that man. I mean, he just lit up the room. And he walked straight to me. That's the way I remember it. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the way it happened, but that's the way I remember it. Uh, Norm and I started dating, and uh, then Daddy came back from Vietnam, and we had to move. And we moved to Fort Rucker, Alabama, and Norm went into the military. A year my, After my first year of college, Norm and I um, decided to get married. And he was stationed in Germany, and he came back home from Germany, and we got married. Then we went to Germany, and for the first time in my life, I was free from Dad. And I was free from Mom, and I was grown up. And we went and we did fantastic things. We had lots of fun. We went dancing. We went to bars. We went drinking. You know, we weren't, I was 19 years old. We went to parties. We had fun. And then I decided that it was time to settle down. And I asked Norm if we could uh, start having a family, that I knew that it was time to have, have, a, have a family. And he said to me, Debbie, I'm not ready to have that kind of responsibility. And I knew he didn't know what he was talking about. So I got pregnant. <laughs> Nine months later, I was in uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, because my, my due date was the same day that he was to rotate from Germany. And I had that little girl in that hospital in Fort Rucker, Alabama, and, and she was born sick. She has uh, what we know today as a lung disease. It's similar to cystic fibrosis. But I didn't know that back then. And um, most of her growing up years and through 
right now, she's had to spend many a day in the hospital. And just about every three months, she would go into the hospital, and um, I would be there with her. And I knew, um, I thank God that he put her in our lives. She's taught us so much. But one of the things that I'm really grateful for is, is that I had to take my focus off Norm from time to time. Um, we were stationed in Virginia uh, after we came back from Germany. And in Virginia was the very first time that I recognized that I was a very lonely woman. You see, I wanted that child to love me unconditionally. And that child was supposed to fill every hole in my body that was empty. That child was a hero child to me, and I did her a great disservice, and I've made amends for that since then. Nobody can be that kind of person, and it's a lot of pressure to, to put on someone. Um, Norm was in the aviation um, branch of the military, and uh, Army, the home of Army Aviation is Fort Rucker, Alabama, and the government saw fit never to send us there. They sent us back to Germany again. And in Germany, the second time was when I started my bar hopping. Um, in the mornings, I would take Norm to work. We had one car. I would drop Tracy off at the daycare, and I would go to work. And in the evening, I would pick up Tracy from the daycare, and I'd go to work to pick up Norm, and he wasn't there. So I started hopping from bar to bar to bar to try to find him. And uh, we went through that just about every day on a weekly basis. And when we moved from, from Germany back to Virginia again, Norm said, Debbie, I promise it's going to be different this time. And I believed him. And we moved back to Virginia, and that's where Norm and I started playing hide-and-seek. Norm would hide, and I would seek. And now instead of waiting outside for him, I would go inside and get him and tell him what I thought he was. Blah, 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 blah. He would hide and I would seek. And he would hide and I would seek. And he would try to find a different place and I'd find him again. Um, during that time, sometime during that year, I remember calling um, in the phone book the, the number of Al-Anon because I saw something in a magazine, you know, some kind of article. And I'm here to tell you that the lady that answered the phone was so sweet that it dripped from her. And I knew she had no idea what I was going through. So I hung up that phone and I didn't go to any meetings. Norm decided that uh, he wanted to get out of the service, and we moved to Fort Rucker, Alabama. And uh, that's where our disease progressed. Mine progressed just as rapidly as Norm's progressed. Um, that's when I didn't mind going in the bar. I would stand up at work. I would drive by the bar. I'd see his car. I would go home. I'd pick up the telephone. I'd call and say, is he there? And they'd say no. And I'd get in the car, and I'd go to the bar, and there he was. And I made a scene, and they didn't like to see me coming. And he didn't either. And one night, um, I put the kids in the back of the car, and uh, I decided I wasn't going to go in that night. I just sat in the parking lot. And it's a very small town, so everybody that went by me said, Hey, Debbie, does Norm know you're here? No, I don't know. And about after the 35th person, Norm came out <laughs> And uh, I decided I was going to follow him that night. I was going to find out where he was going and what he was doing and how much money he was spending. And I, he got out of the parking lot before I could back up. You know, it's just crazy stuff like that that we did. And I'm here to tell you that I was a very mean person. I was not nice, and I was, I was vengeful. If you ask me, I would have told you that I was a saint 
taking care of his children, taking care of his family, taking care of his bills, blah, 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 blah. That was my perception of what was going on in our household. And one day I got up and I decided enough. And in the state of Alabama, you can get a divorce really quick. I mean, just, you know, I went to the lawyer's office, got all the information, came home, told Norm that I was filing for a divorce and that he would sign the papers or I would take everything he had. Well, he signed the papers and I took everything he had. <laughs> Thirty days later, I found that I had a um, problem with sleeping. I was a nervous wreck. I was crying all the time, and I went to the doctor, and he told me I was pregnant. Two and a half months. Well, I'm here to tell you that that was not a happy day in my life. I'm here to tell you that blackness came into my life. Despair came into my life. Um, I was so afraid, and fear again was my ruling my guiding light was fear. I was so afraid that that child would be sick and that she would need health insurance. I was a hairdresser. I didn't have any private health insurance. Through the divorce, Norm had to keep the insurance on our oldest daughter. So we remarried. And there was a change in me. A change came over me. It was very, very dark. Very dark. There was no hope. There was no light. Um, Norm uh, decided about when she was about five months old that he was going to go to Egypt. And I used to tell people that that was a time for me to rest and relax. And, you know, I got to contemplating on it not too long ago, and that's not the truth. I tried to manipulate and manage that man, and I was in Alabama, and he was in Egypt. I'd send him letters telling him lies so that he would feel horrible. Now, that's the kind of person I was. That's how sick my disease took me. He came back from Egypt, and he said, it's going to be better, Debbie. And I believed him one more time. Uh, he went to NASA, and he was laid off, and he began eight months of unemployment. And we began our foot race. I would work in the daytime. He would uh, get his unemployment check. He would spend it. Now, if I was home, we'd race to the mailbox, get the unemployment check, or if he didn't happen to be home, I'd hide it because I was counting eggs and I was counting bread and I was counting just to make sure that we had enough to feed the girls and pay the bills. And Norm was doing what, what his disease told him he had to do. I didn't realize that, but we, but we raced a lot to the mailbox. Um, one night, Norm came in, and he said, I brought you something. And as he came in, he dropped his keys on the floor. And he, handed, he held up a $20 bill. And I said, why didn't you spend it all? And he said, I think I will. And he bent over to get his keys. And when he bent over, I took a running start from one side of the room to the other, and I knocked the man out cold. Now, I don't tell you that to brag. What I want you to know is that's where my disease took me. I was not raised that way. That man lay on the floor, crying the whole night long, screaming, asking for help, saying that he was cold, wanting a blanket, and I didn't care. I did not care if he lived or he died. All I cared about was how I was going to get the girls through the living room seeing their without seeing their father dead on the floor. Well, he didn't die. 
Shortly after that, he got his job back. And he told me it was my responsibility to wake him up. And I don't know about you, but it's hard to wake up somebody who's been drinking all night long. It's hard to get them to wake up. And that white rage came over me. And I got a cast iron skillet, and I started beating him. And he woke up. As we were coming up here yesterday, he, he was talking about the bumps and bruises that, you know, he used to find when he'd get up in the morning. And I didn't say anything. I was real quiet. <laughs> I'm not letting out any more secrets that I don't have to. Um, when that white rage came over me, a fear came over me, too. I did not know what I was capable of doing next. I was scared. There was no way out. I had divorced him. I had left him, I had kicked him out, I had beat him, I didn't know what else to do. And another change happened, and I started taking that anger inward. And I decided one day that there was no way out of this hell, there was absolutely no way that I could get out. So we have a long bridge between um, where I worked and where our house was. And that day, I was absolutely for sure that I was going to drive off that bridge. I had my place picked out. I had my hands on the steering wheel. I had my, my, pedal, my foot on the gas pedal, and I was ready to go. And this voice, the voice that today I know is God, said, who's going to raise the girls? And I said, not him. Not him. And I straightened the wheel back up, and I was really scared, y'all. My knees were shaking. I... I Everything inside of me was just, I, it's amazing I, I, that I even got home. By the grace of God, I am here today and not dead or in jail. By the grace of God. I drove home and I called my pastor and I was ready to talk to somebody. And we talked and, and we talked and God is so good. The pastor said, Debbie, there's a lady in church that I want you to talk to. Her name is Martha. Well, you know that, that little baby that I had just had not too long ago? That was, that was her Sunday school teacher. Isn't God good? Um, I waited until everybody was out of the room. I didn't want anybody to hear what I had to say. And I walked up to Miss Martha and I said, Martha, do you know anything about alcoholism? And she put her arms around me and she said, oh, honey. And she gave me the biggest hug that I'd had in a long, long time. And so today, when I give hugs, I love to give hugs. Because what it says to me is, number one, Debbie, you're right where you need to be. You're where people understand you. You're loved. No matter what you do, no matter what you've done, you are loved. She gave me that hug that day, and it meant so much more than just a hug. It meant a lot. She took me to my first Al-Anon meeting, and I wish I could stand up here and tell you that the profound things that were said that night, but I can't remember any of them. What I can remember was you gave me a message of hope. You gave me hope. You know, I, I used to think that there was, I mean, I knew there was other alcoholics out there, but I just never knew that there was other people out there that felt just the same way I did. That night was an awesome night. And I went home and I started reading all the literature, and I, I put the literature out in conspicuous places so that, you know, somebody in my family might pick it up and, and read it. And I have heard from him and his story that he did pick it up, but he put it right back down where he found it because he didn't want me to know that he'd even touched it. <laughs> we were still playing those games. Um, I, loved, I loved what you had, and I wanted to come back for more. 
What I went to Al-Anon for was for you to tell me how to leave. I didn't care that he was still drinking. He told me he was going to drink for the rest of his life, that he enjoyed drinking. What I wanted you to tell me, I wanted the secret. You tell me how to leave him, okay? What I heard in those rooms was nine out of ten women that marry an alcoholic will and divorce him will remarry another one. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. I'd already had this stuff. So I decided I'd stay around for a little while and see what you had to offer. And it was awesome. It was awesome. Martha was my sponsor for a long, long time, and then she quit coming. And after three years, I was the guru of the group. And um, there is a really good reason why our literature suggests that we don't sponsor ourselves. <laughs> after, uh, after three years, I didn't have a sponsor. I was kind of like that fish out of water floundering out there. Um, I started praying and asking God to, to guide me to the person that you know, would be right for me. Um, prayed for a long time. Please show me the person. Put put that person in my life. Let me know that this is the person for me. And I want you to know that um, I need to back up a little bit. When I came into the program and, and you told me that I was powerless over alcohol and my life was unmanageable, I promise you that if there was one more thing I thought I could do, if there was one more secret that you would have told me, I would have tried it. I would have tried it. But what you told me was that I was powerless. And I kind of figured that. After everything that I tried, it didn't work. My life was unmanageable. You bet. You bet. I could stand up and do work in the daytime, but I couldn't even tie my shoes at night because I was too worried about what he was doing, who he was with, how much money he was spending, and would he come home drunk, or would he kill somebody on the road. That's what I was thinking about at night. When you told me that um, step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could res- restore us to sanity, and you told me I was insane, I didn't kind of, I just didn't want to believe that until you said, Debbie. When you do the same things over and over and over again, each time expecting different results, that's insane. And I thought, you know, every time that Norm said it would be different, I believed it was going to be different. And every time that it wasn't, I was devastated. Nothing changed. Norm didn't change. I didn't change. But I thought things would change every time we moved. So I believed that I was kind of insane. Yeah, no, yeah, I understood that. Six months into the program, um, Norm came to me, and he he uh, told me that he needed to talk to me after work. And we went out to dinner, and he told me that he wanted a divorce. I can't imagine the the man wanting to divorce me. Can you? I was a perfect wife, and I was going to Al-Anon. It really upset me. It really, it really upset me. Norm took some money out of savings that we didn't really have a lot of. It was something that he got back from when he was in Egypt. And uh, he said he was going to move out and get a divorce. Well, I called um, one of my Al-Anon friends on the phone because that's what you told me to do. You told me to pick up the phone and call. And I did. And she said, Debbie, isn't that what you wanted? I didn't like that answer. So I hung up the phone and called somebody else. <laughs> And she said, Debbie, you need to get to a meeting. And I said, I can't. And she said, why not? I said, because I don't want you to see me cry. Now, can you imagine in six months' time, somebody that came in that had nothing, and in six months I had so much pride, I didn't want to go to a meeting because I didn't want you to see me cry. Well, she told me in no uncertain terms what would happen if I didn't get myself to that meeting. So I went that night, and um, I don't remember what the discussion was about, But after the meeting, um, somebody came up to me and gave me a hug and said, are you okay? And I said, no, he's taken all the money and he's going to spend it all and he's going to come home crawling. And what she said to me was, Debbie, if it takes that money to get him sober, 
isn't it worth it? And I said, yes. And then she said, don't make him crawl. You see, I I knew how to do that. Four o'clock in the morning, somebody knocked on the door. That was Norm. He fell through the door, and he said, I need help. And I looked down at him, and I said, are you sure? And he said, I need help. Well, I picked up the phone, and I called that lady that I called at the very first time, and I said, he wants help. And, you know, I'm so grateful today that there wasn't somebody at the other end of the phone saying, Debbie, hang up the phone. He needs to call. Debbie, when he hasn't had a drink for 24 hours, get him to call us. Debbie, there's a meeting XXX time. You know, if he wants to go, get him there. Nobody said that to me. What they did was the same thing that um, was written in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Her and her husband came to my house at 4 o'clock in the morning, and one alcoholic shared with another, and one Al-Anon shared with another. And I am so very, very grateful for that. That night, after I went to the meeting and before he came home, I sat in my bed, and I talked to God, and I said, if there is a God, whatever you have planned for my life has got to be better than what I have, what I'm doing right now. You see, you had given me a God of my own understanding, or or I had seen in you that you had a God of your own understanding, and I was holding on to your words because most of the time, what you had told me really worked. So I was I was calling out to your God, not the God that was going to get me, not the God that was going to punish me. You gave me your God to use until I could find one of my own. But what I said to him that night was, whatever you have planned for me has got to be better than what I'm doing now. And then shortly after that, that phone call came. So now I'm going to speed up to um, three years in the program. And I'm, I'm talk, uh, asking God for a sponsor. And we, Norm and I went down to Panama City to a roundup. And our group used to sit on the second row because the speakers sat on the front row, and we'd sit right behind them on the second row. And as we were coming around, I noticed the lady's name tag, and it said North Little Rock. And I punched Norm because we're both from Little—I mean, we're both from Arkansas—and I said, um, "She's from Arkansas." Now I wouldn't speak to her because I was scared to death, but Norm would. Norm introduced himself. He told her where he was from, and we sat down and we listened to her. And you know what? That lady told my story. She spoke to my heart. I think God put her there just to talk to me. Now, you all know that's true. That's my perspective, okay? <laughs> um, that, that lady's been my sponsor for the last 20 years now. Um, I love her to death. I don't always like what she has to say, but I absolutely love her to death. She started me back into doing the steps, and um, she sent me this book, Glit about this big well you know it's it's probably about this big but it looked like this and when we got to the fourth step she sent me another booklet and it was this big too well maybe that big but it was front and back single spaced questions and there was questions on there that I didn't want to answer and there was questions on there that I didn't want you to know about me because if you knew that stuff about me you definitely wouldn't like me I was going back to that bad child you wouldn't love me so I called her one day I'm, I'm in the middle of my bed trying to do this stuff. I'm crying. Norm comes in and says, what's wrong? And I said, I, I took that paper. I threw it across the room, and I said, I can't do this. And he said, well, get another sponsor. And I was horrified, horrified that he was working my program for me. What do you mean get another sponsor? So, 
So I called her and I said, do I have to do this? And she said, no. And I thought, okay. She said, you can hurt just as long as you want to. That was not the answer I wanted. But I went ahead and did it because that's what you told me to do. You know, when I first came into the program, they said stick with winners. Well, she was a winner in my eyes, and I wanted to have what she had. So I was willing to do what she did. I couldn't take the easier, softer way, never have. It, isn't the, it doesn't ever work for me. I have to learn the hard way. So um, we scheduled time to do my fifth step, and she was speaking in Gunnersville, up at Lake Gunnersville. I was so, so scared. So scared. Norm and I have since been back, and it is a beautiful place, absolutely gorgeous place. But I didn't see it that first time. I was so scared. I was going to tell somebody, one person, everything about me. And remember, I didn't tell anybody anything about me. I could stand and talk to you and find out if you'd been married, how many kids you had, if you had grandkids, where you lived, blah, blah, blah. I didn't tell you anything about me. I didn't tell you anything about me, and now I was going to tell somebody everything. This woman that I respected and I admired and I loved. And she sat with me and she held me, and she held me, and we cried, and she held me. And at the end she said, I love you. And I knew she meant it. Juanita, I knew she meant it. We came down off that mountain, and uh, I didn't have a mountaintop experience. I didn't have something that was just... you know, done with and we move on. No, I, I, uh, I was empty for a little while. I was numb. Um, but I told you I have to learn slowly. I never learn anything the easier, softer way. We were in a meeting. I was in a meeting with her in um, North Little Rock, and they, their uh, topic was on step six. And they passed little pieces of paper around that had a question on it. And my question was, how does step six help you with the obsessions that you carry every day? Well, I don't know about you, but I can carry an obsession anytime, any day, anywhere. I can obsess about something all day long. I can lay in my bed. I can think about it all night long. That's the first thing I'm going to think about when I wake up in the morning. I am obsessing. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to do God's work. I'm obsessing. So I thought and I thought, how does step six work with this? Oh, oh, I have to be entirely ready to give up my obsession. The God of my understanding is a gentleman, and he will never, ever take anything away from me that I am not willing to give up. I promise you that. Anything that I've ever given up most of the time has claw marks all over it because I'm going to hang on to it to the bitter end. I had to be entirely ready to give up the obsession to a power greater than myself. And I have to go back to step two and say what what I do over and over and over again and doesn't get any results is insane. So I think I'll give it to you, God. Here it is. That's the process that I go through. I do say, I I will tell you that I was brought up in Al-Anon with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but that's just the way it is, and I feel like we got sick together. I want us to get well together. I love the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It talked to me. I say the third step and seventh step prayer every day out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm here to tell you, if you don't want your character defects in your face, don't pray that prayer. (laughs) Don't pray the prayer. It is my, when I pray that prayer, those character defects that God sees fit is time for to remove is in my face. I use them every day until I'm sick and tired of them and entirely ready to give them up. 
When it came to making a list of the people that I had harmed, I was one of those people that thought I owed you an amends for breathing the air that you were, you know, in. And I gave my list to my sponsor, and she just shook her head, and she rolled her eyes. And she said, Debbie, where's God? And I thought, oh, (laughs) I forgot God again. She said he needs to be number one on the list. And where are you? Well, my name wasn't on there either. She said, you need to be number two on the list. God first, you, and then the other amends. You know, I was the hardest person on myself than anybody ever could be. I'm my worst enemy. I'm my worst critic. I needed to be on that list. I didn't know how to make amends to myself, but over the years, she's shown me how. Somewhere in that time, my dad had a massive heart attack, And we drove from Alabama to Little Rock, which is a 12-hour drive. And in that 12 hours, I played over my head over and over again what I was going to say to my dad and what he was going to say to me and what I was going to say to my dad and what he was going to say to me. I was going to convince him that I was good and good enough to be loved, and he was going to put his arms around me and say he loved me and that he was going to go off into surgery. And when I walked into the intensive care room, he rolled over and said, What are you doing here? I told you to stay home. Now, I don't know that that's what my dad said. Please understand that. That is what I heard. That is what I heard. Today, as a parent, he probably didn't want me to make that trip because he probably didn't think it was a you know, big enough thing to drive all that way. But I shut up. I had set myself up for 12 hours going over what I was going to say, what he was going to say, what I was going to say, what he was going to say. I set myself up for disappointment right then. After three days in the hospital, I called my sponsor and I said, come get me. And you know God plans ahead. God is so good. When I prayed for that sponsor, I had no idea that my mom and dad would be in the hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas, that a lot of my life would be in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he picked a woman from Little Rock, Arkansas. Isn't that awesome? I've had people all all of my Al-Anon years say, well, why don't you get a local sponsor? You know, I'm not going to mess with God's plan. I am not going to mess with God's plan. It works if you work it. You have to be willing to work it, and I was willing to work it because she was a winner, and I wanted what she had. So I called her, and I said, come get me, and she came and got me, and um, I just went through this whole spiel in the car going to her house. And when, we fin- when I finally shut up, and <laughs> we were in her living room, our kitchen, she said, Debbie, if your kids came to you and asked you for something and you couldn't give it to them, how would you feel? And I told her I'd feel horrible. And she said, but what if they came back and kept asking for something that you absolutely could not give them? Well, I'd feel devastated. And she said, Debbie, what if they kept coming back and you couldn't give it to them? And I just kind of looked at her with, in, with these puzzling eyes, and she said, your dad is giving you the very best he can give you. And at that moment, I understood. My dad was adopted. He was adopted back in the 30s, and the The uh, parents that adopted him considered him property he was bought and paid for. My dad was giving me as much as he could give me, as much as he could give me. So when we we would have a conversation on the phone, I'd I'd hang up, get ready to hang up the phone. I'd say, Daddy, I love you. He'd go, "Uh uh-huh. So for years and years, I knew that "Uh uh-huh meant I love you too. I love you too. I have a story to tell you about the uh, ninth step. There was a woman on my list, um, uh, you know, when I was sponsoring myself, mm, I sponsored her too. (laughs) I owed her an amends. And so I prayed and I asked God to take all the resentment away from me. I didn't want to go to her with any kind of resentment or residual yeah buts 
anywhere. That the the that was not my purpose. I said, God, when you know when it's time. So it, I decided one day it was time, and I pulled up into her driveway, and I got out of my car, and there were no curtains on the windows, and there was no furniture in the house. She moved. So uh, I got in my car, and I said, okay, God, I understand. It's not time. So I continued to pray and ask God to um, show me the time. And she walked into a restaurant that was next to where I, I worked, and I followed her in the restaurant, and I said, can we talk after you eat? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, thank you, and I walked out and didn't see her again. And I smiled and I said, okay, God, not in my time, in yours. And later on that year, she was picking up her daughter at high school and I was picking up my daughter. And we were in the hall at the same time. And I was able to make my amends to her. And, you know, I didn't have any residual yeah buts. I didn't have any resentment. I just asked her to forgive me, asked her how I could make it up to her. And um, it was a beautiful thing. And I smiled and I said, thank you, God. Because when I put it in God's hands, his timing is always perfect. Always perfect. Ten years into the program, Norm and I were driving down Dale County 1. It's a little county road where we live. And the windows were all rolled up, and Norm and I were talking. I can't tell you what the conversation was about. But I do know that he told God and the whole world my deepest, darkest secret that day. I felt like the windows were rolled down, and he had a megaphone spouting it to everybody as we drove down the road. What he said to me was, Debbie, you don't let anybody get close to you. And in an instant, I said, if you had lived with an alcoholic as I lived with an alcoholic, you wouldn't let anybody get close to you either. Ten years. You see how quick that came back? That was those old survival tools. And the minute they came out of my mouth, I knew they were wrong. And I couldn't put them back in. And he patted me on the leg and he said, will you ever forgive me? And I felt this big, this big. And I called my sponsor, and I I told her what I did. And she said, Debbie, you can't ever play that game again, not ever. She said, because the cards are stacked in your favor. Never. I'm so glad that I can make amends on a daily basis. And I went to that man, and I asked him what I could do to make it up to him. He said, don't worry about it. But what I've tried to do is I've tried to allow people to know me, all of me. And to include him in that, all of me. I guess today he thinks some of the things that I say are nonsense. But I want him to know what's going on in my mind. What's going on in my life. How I feel. And you know what's more I want you to know too. There's no no secrets that I have. I want to be open and I want to be honest. And I want to show you the person that God has built through the 12 steps and, and of Alcoholics and, 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 and Al-Anon, AA and Al-Anon. Through this program, what what can happen? The vision for you. It's it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. Earlier this year, we were in uh, Fort Myers with some program friends, and her and I went to a bookstore, and we were looking at books that I, there's a spiritual woman that I listen to, and she's got some books out, and I absolutely love to, to read her books. And there was one that I hadn't had, and it was a book on prayers. And I started opening the book, and I was reading, well, if you say this, then you get this. And the next page said, this is a prayer for this if you want this. And the next page said, this is a prayer for this if you want this. And my spirit was really, really offended, very offended, and I couldn't figure it out until I thought about it later. And you know what that was for me? All those years, I played the word game. 
I tried to manipulate you with words. I tried to get you to think my way with words. I tried you to, to get you to do what, what I wanted you to do with words. I had also bargained with God. I was not about to pick up a book that said, if you want this, pray this. Because I didn't want to get back into that word game with God. Thy will be done is the simplest prayer that I can say. And that's all I need. Thy will be done in the power to carry that out. The 12 steps promise us that if we have gone through these steps, we will have a spiritual awakening. And I want you to know I had one. I'm continuing to have one on a daily basis. I do practice these principles in all my affairs. And I will tell you, I don't get them right. I don't get them near right. But I keep trying I'm so glad we have that little slogan that says progress rather than perfection because I don't think I could ever get it perfect and I'd have to quit, you know, rather than fail. Um, I do share with others what God has given me. In 1999, our daughter, our youngest daughter, that one that I got pregnant with, uh, graduated from high school. And for 26 years, I had been a mother and I had been taking care of children. And all of a sudden, there was nothing left for me to do. And I can remember sitting at the dinner table. I was so depressed. And Norm looked up at me and he said, you can take care of me. (laughs) And I said, honey, it didn't work before. What makes you think it'll work now? (laughs) It just, you know, it's not going to work. My sponsor had been after me to come to a woman-to-woman convention that they have in Arkansas for years. And I did a song and dance and told her why I couldn't come. It was not why I couldn't come. It was why I wouldn't come. I was afraid. I was afraid of you. I was afraid to get to know you. You may not like me if you got to know me. I was scared to death of you. But that year, four of us from our group went. And I felt like I stood in front of God naked and said, Okay, God, what do I do now? And God said, Learn to love Debbie. Well, how do you do that? I didn't know how to do that. I absolutely did not know how to do that. We, uh, there's, they also have a getaway in, in January, and Norm and I and um, another couple went, and when we, when we came in that day, they said um, to write on a piece of paper what you got, wanted God to take from you. Well, I wrote um, self-image. I wanted God to take away that nasty self-image that I had of myself. So that night we had a meditation and a bonfire, and we were supposed to throw that little thing in the fire and go around the fire and pick out a piece of paper, and it would have a word on it. Well, my word was maturity. God was telling me it was time to grow up. He said, Debbie, I have given you the 12 steps. I have given you love. I have given you support. I have given you a new way of life. Grow up. Just grow up. Wow. That was very powerful for me. Very, very powerful. And that began the series of learning to love myself. I went back in the fall, and my sponsor came down the hallway, and she said, "Um, we need greeters. And I thought, okay, I can be a greeter. Well, I thought that a greeter would sit behind the desk, check off your name, say, we're glad you're here, your room number is so-and-so. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is not what a greeter does in Arkansas. What they do is they go out to the car, they give you a hug, tell you they're glad you're here, get your luggage, come back in, find your room number, take your luggage to the room, give you a hug, and say, we're glad you're here. I did not want to do that. That's not what I signed up for. But I did it anyway, because that's what you've taught me in this program. Even when I don't want to do it, do it anyway. 
One of the girls that I sponsored uh, had gone to a museum and she brought me back some bubbles. So I was blowing bubbles and hugging people and bringing them inside and telling them we're glad we're here. And then later on that weekend, we got to walk through the woods. And, and the leaves had been turning and coming down and I was kicking through the leaves and it was awesome. It was just awesome. And when we left that weekend, one of the girls that was driving with us broke her glasses, and I went back inside to try to find out where we could have our glasses fixed, and I came back outside, and there was a group of women standing there, and they were saying traveling prayers. They were from Mississippi, so they said, come on, Debbie, let's join in. And so we prayed, and the girl that sat next to me said, thank you, God, for allowing the little girl and me to come out and play. And you know what? For two hours of that 12-hour trip home, I cried was not tears of sadness. It was tears of joy. Because that weekend, God showed me how to play. God showed me how to have fun. Just to have fun. For fun and for free. Six weeks later, December 19, 2000, I was diagnosed with two kinds of breast cancer. And my world changed. I felt like somebody took a baseball bat and knocked me at my knees. I can remember where I was when the announcement came that JFK had been assassinated. And I can remember where I was when the towers came down. And I can remember where I was when I was told that I had breast cancer. And my life was to change forever. Norm had to work in Duluth. Our youngest daughter was in college, so I moved to Montgomery to be with my oldest daughter and to have treatments in Montgomery, Alabama. I called my dad and my mom, and any time in our lifetime when um, anything happened serious in our family, we'd call, and if mother would answer, we'd say, can we talk to dad? That very same thing happened to me not too long ago, and I just kind of chuckled with the memory. But during that time, my dad wouldn't talk to me, and I thought that I had done something terribly wrong. Every time that I called home and he picked up the phone, he would say, here's your mother. I went to the getaway that year. Uh, the next year was in January, and I was healing from some surgery before I had to have my treatments. And when I got back from that getaway, I would have to start my treatments on Monday. Excuse me. You know that um, when I came into the program the very first time, I came in and I got, and I got, and I got, and I got. And then there was a point that I had to give back. And I found out that no matter how long you're in this program, there are times that you just need to simply get. And I was at that getaway to get all the love, all the support, all the hugs that I could possibly carry back with me to Alabama to start my treatments. And um, when my dad saw me, he, he, you know, it, we, we started conversing back and forth. Um, when, when I was having radiation, there's this huge machine that they put on one side of you. They put you on this little bitty table, and the, they get you all situated, and then the therapist walks out the door, across the hall, behind the desk, and she hits a button. And you're in there all by yourself, and this huge machine is moving over you. And I realized that I never was by myself. God was with me. Every time I crawled up on that table, I said, okay, God, come on. We're in this together. In March of that year, my mom and dad came to Alabama to to help take care of me. And what I found out was that when my dad was 17 years old, he took his future mother-in-law to have her cancer treatments every day. And what he saw was them burn her up, and she died. And that 60-some-year-old man had a vision of the 17-year-old knowledge. He didn't want that to happen to his daughter. But he took me every day to have my treatment. 
And as he was leaving, we were standing in front of Tracy's fireplace, and he put his arm around me, and they were taking pictures, and he kissed my cheek, and he said, I love you. I called my sponsor, and I said, I'd go through it again. He said, I love you. That was the first first benefit that I found out from having cancer. Several months, uh, several weeks after that, I was back up in Montgomery for a Relay for Life walk, and my daughter was walking the track, our daughter was walking the track with one of her co-workers. His father had died of cancer while I was having my treatments, and her husband at the time got very, very jealous because she was walking with another man, pitched a fit, threw everything in the truck, and went home. And um, my daughter, we left shortly after that, and she came in that night, and she threw a bottle of pills at me, and she said, Mom, hold on to these because I just can't take it anymore. And if I have these, I'm going to take them. And because of what you taught me, because of what you taught me in these rooms, I was able to hold on to her and say, Tracy, you were raised in an alcoholic home, and it has affected you. This is what worked for me. Maybe it will work for you. I didn't have to tell her what a sorry you-know-what I thought her husband was. I didn't have to downgrade him. I didn't have to do any of that. You told me how to behave as a loving mother, and that's what I did. Tracy has found her own Al-Anon group. That's the second benefit there of having that awful disease. She found one in Montgomery, Alabama, and, and you know, if she had found one at home, she would have been Debbie's daughter. But when she finds her own meeting, she's got her own sponsor, she works her own steps, she goes to meeting as Tracy. And when I go visit, I'm Tracy's mom. And that's a wonderful thing because you know what that says? That says that we have preserved this program to pass it on to future generations. And that is awesome. That is awesome. Um, Tracy continues to be in the program. She continues to have a sponsor, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful. One of the things that when she found out, I think 11 years old, when she really found out how sick she was, we were riding down the road and she said, Mom, I'm so sorry that I'm a burden. I'm so sorry that you and Daddy have to spend all your money on doctors and take me back and forth. And I said to her, you're not a burden, honey. It's love. Your father, God gave you to your father and I because he knew we would take care of you. It has never been a burden. And as I was going back and forth for my cancer treatment, I looked at her and I said, Tracy, is it a burden? And what she said, Mom, was, no, Mom, it's love. You see, God had to have me there to show her she was never, ever a burden, ever. It was love. In July of 2004, I got a phone call that my father had been diagnosed with lung cancer. That is not something, I was very, very angry, very angry. I thought, I thought, you know, I've already been through this. Why does my dad have to go through it? But my sponsor says, why not, you know? What she told me was to go make memories. Because of you, because of 12 steps of this program, I didn't have to go and make amends. Daddy and I had already had a foundation and we were building it. I could go and I could have memories. And about every four to six weeks, I'd go home and Daddy and I, we just, you know, I could be just be sitting in the same room, and it was okay. It was okay. We didn't have to talk. But I got to do things with him and for him. And in November of that year, he, he was told that his cancer was gone. In January, when Tracy and I went back to the getaway, um, he, was going, he was hooking up his RV, and he was going to Mardi Gras. The man was 69 years old, and he'd never been to Mardi Gras, and I was really scared for him. But... <laughs> 
but but that's what he wanted to do, and I'm so grateful that he was able to do that because when he got back in early March, uh, the doctors told him that there was lesions on his brain, and I went to... I went out to Arkansas. And, you know, God is so good that he plans ahead, and his plan is always perfect, always. Do you know the, ho- the side of the a town that the hospital was on was the same side of town that I'd gone to those roundups and getaways for years? I knew, th- I knew that part of town, and I was able to dra- drive my dad back and forth to those treatments. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, I was able to take him when he needed to go to the emergency room. I knew where the hospital was. God planned ahead. Any good? Any good? As I was walking down the hallway, um, rolling my dad in a wheelchair, my dad had his, hand, his head on his hand, and he looked up at me and he said, I'm so sorry that I'm a burden. And I was able to bend down and whisper, Daddy, it's not a burden. It's love. The people in my, I had to turn my cell phone off because the cell phone noise bothered my dad. So the people in my home group would call me and they would leave messages on my cell phone. And at 9 o'clock at night, every night, I'd check my cell phone and there were messages from my home group. There were messages from people like you that loved me and just wanted me to know that they were thinking about me and they were praying for me. And, you know, those little messages gave me hope to go through the next day. My sponsor was there with me, and she gave me hugs when I needed hugs. And when I needed to get out of the RV and go to her house, I was able to go, and a, and a woman was there from California spending the night, and she gave up her bed for me. My sister in this program, she gave up her bed for me. How wonderful. I don't know any place else you could go. Somebody would give up a bed for you, tell you to come on. Doesn't, doesn't matter, you know, you hadn't seen them in years. I um, had to do things that... Daughters should not have to do for their dad. And I would call my sponsor and she'd say, Debbie, you're a loving daughter. What would a loving daughter do? And I got the opportunity to be a loving daughter. And I will forever cherish that. In May 5th, 2005, my dad died from lung cancer. That was a very, very, very hard time for me. That giant of a man turned into a skeleton, and I wouldn't want him here the way he was. Because of this program, because of people like you, I was able to grieve. I was able to walk through that with dignity and grace. My sponsor had me call her every single night to tell me what, for me to tell her what was going on. She would say to me, Debbie, what can I do for you? And I'd say, pray for me, and she said, I already am, sweetheart. When my dad died and we had the funeral, there were four rows of family over here. There was two rows of family behind me. And as I walked out, there was my Rose City Al-Anon family group. There was my sponsor and her husband, and there was Kay, who lost her mother a few months before. And there was Denny, who lost his daughter to cancer a few months before that. And there was Julie and Rick. All of those people that has become my family, they were there for me. They were there for me. They loved me. All of me. That's what you've taught me here. You've given me unconditional love. Absolute unconditional love. And we're there for one another. We never, ever, ever have to walk through any of this alone anymore. We'll walk together. And it's awesome. It is an awesome feeling. I grieved very, very, very hard. Before I came into the program, I didn't know what my feelings were. I was numb and I was shut down. And I didn't want to do that this time. 
And with your help and the help of my sponsor, the help of these steps, I was able to walk through it and get to the other side. It's not easy, and it's been very painful. But life isn't easy sometimes, and we're not promised it's going to be a rose garden. We have steps. We have people here to help us walk through it. No matter how long I'm in the program, God gives me the opportunity to practice what I need to practice every day of my life. Back in the fall, um, I almost killed myself with justification and rationalization. October the 16th, I left Alabama, uh, Level Plains, Alabama, and I went to Montgomery, spent the night there while my daughter worked, picked her up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and we headed out um, for Arkansas Woman to Woman 2005. By the time I got to Birmingham, which is about an hour and a half, my stomach started really hurting, and I told myself, I justified it, saying I hadn't had any breakfast and I had taken my medicine on an empty stomach. Well, you know what? That was a lie. I lied to myself. I don't know why I do those kind of stupid things, but I do. I'd had an apple muffin, a Weight Watchers apple muffin, and then I took my medicine. By the time I got to Tupelo, it was hurting really, really bad, and I thought, okay, Debbie, you're halfway there. You can go home or you can go back uh, to your mother's. Which way do you want to go? Well, I wanted to go to my mother's. By the time I got to Memphis, every time that I uh, hit a stoplight, I put the car in park and I put my head on, on the car. It is by the grace of God that I got home that day. My daughter popped her head up and she said, Mom, I'll drive. And I said, you're not driving. You'll kill us. You've got three hours sleep. Well, when I got to my mother's, I went straight to bed. At 11 o'clock that night, I was taken to the emergency room in Clinton, Arkansas, and four days later, I woke up in intensive care in Little Rock, Arkansas. I had justified and rationalized 600 miles of being sick. Never once did it occur to me to stop at a hospital. Never once did it occur to me to go to a doctor. Never once. When I woke up in that intensive care room and my daughter was standing over me and my sponsor was standing over me, the doctor was telling them how sick I was. I was in respiratory failure. My lungs had shut down. And they told them that I was going to be sicker and probably have to be put on a ventilator. God planned ahead. There was a doctor there that specializes in abnormal pneumonias. And he doesn't, he doesn't see a lot of people. But he saw me. And he knew what he thought was wrong with me, and he started treatments right away. And that man literally saved my life. But the beautiful thing that happened was that my daughter was at a convention of 150 women, Al-Anon AA women, that hugged her, held on to her. They didn't try to fix her. They didn't try to tell her that it was going to be better, it was going to be okay. They just let her be. They just held her and let her sob. They protected her. They gave her a safe place to go. When the doctor was telling them that they were going to have to put me on a ventilator and he just patted my shoulder and said, we're going to put you in a possum sleep, I got scared. I got really scared. And my, my first thought was, how the hell did I get here? And I, I mean, I, I guess, there were, I mean, I knew there was an ambulance, but that wasn't what I meant. How did I go from being healthy to being this sick? I didn't know. I had no clue. And I told God that I was scared. I said, God, I know that you don't give me a spirit of fear, but I am so afraid. And after everybody left, that night, here comes two of my Rose City Al-Anon angels. 
and one sit at the end of the bed and one sit at, over by the, the, by the window. And I was hooked up to everything and had things coming out my neck and they were telling me beautiful stories, absolutely beautiful stories. God sent those angels to me while there was other angels holding on to my daughter. You can't tell me that this is not a program of love. God has shown me love and abundance through this program. Absolute abundance. It's here for the taking. God told me a long time ago to grow up. Grow up, Debbie. He has a vision for us all. And all we have to do is accept it. To simply accept it. My life changed after uh, that incident. I was no longer able to go back into cosmetology because of the chemicals. I had to sell my part of the business, and the day that I sold the, pay, the, the business that I'd had for 23 years, I said, okay, God, whatever you have planned, whatever you have planned. God has been so good. I never thought, we, you know, we would be doing much traveling because I was not working, and look where he's put me today, Nashville, Tennessee. It's awesome what God will do if we'll only allow him. When he closed that door... I knew that there would be a window somewhere, and normally I would be banging a hole through the wall to try to get out. But this time, God and I sat together. We healed. God's got a vision. I don't need to know the answer. I just need to suit up, show up one day at a time, and share in what God has given me, this awesome program and the love of one another. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.